How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study of the word this evening, let's make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to focus on the study of his word. Use of 1 John 1, 9, if necessary, in silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word. Your word is indeed powerful in that it is the truth, and it is the truth that sets us free. Your truth enables us to understand that there is a plan and a purpose to history, that events in history are not merely random events, that history is not something that is just sort of uh, uh, progressing by fits and starts, but has a purpose, a guiding hand, and is headed towards an ultimate conclusion that will see the end of evil in, in the universe. Father, we pray now as we study your word that you would help us to understand the things that we study, see how they encourage us and challenge us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight, Lord willing, and if I'm not too long-winded on get and run off on any rabbit trails, we're going to conclude our study of dispensations and covenants. That means that the next series that we will begin will be on Daniel. On Daniel. So we will get back into a book study. Now, at the conclusion of history, we come to the dispensation, the final dispensation in human history called the Millennium. There. That time it started. We'll have a visual in just a minute. Called the Millennium. A 1,000-year period of human history, which is also called the Messianic Kingdom, and is the fulfillment of all the time during which God fulfills all of His promises to Israel in the Old Testament. The millennium ends with the great white throne judgment that's described in Revelation chapter 20, at which time the present heavens and earth are destroyed and a new heavens and new earth are created. And that is what we will wrap up with this evening. Now, the last time that we, the conclusion of last time, or first of all, Revelation 20, 1 through 6, is the central passage for the millennium as a thousand-year period of time. It's the only passage that gives a time designation. And there we read that, the, that the Satan will be bound for a thousand years in Revelation 20, verse 2, and that in verse 3 it states again that when the thousand years are completed, Satan is released for a, second, or for a short time, and following that is the uh, second resurrection. So that is the central passage for the Millennial Kingdom being a thousand-year rule and reign. Now, last time we started on the section on the Millennium describing the spiritual life during the Millennial Kingdom. The spiritual life during the Millennial Kingdom has certain things in common with other dispensations, of course. Salvation is still based on faith alone in Christ alone, and it is looking back to the fact that Christ paid the full penalty for sin on the cross. It is, has other things that are in common with or similar to events in the Old Testament dispensation of Israel because remember it is primarily a dispensation oriented toward Israel. Israel is the centerpiece of the millennial kingdom. You read through the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, you discover that there is a tremendous emphasis on a regathering of Israel and all that God will do for Israel when he regathers them into the land. And at that point, he is going to establish a new temple, the Millennial Temple, and there will be millennial worship that is centered around a millennial sacrificial system. There will be a restoration of animal sacrifices. And that's what we are looking at this 
this evening. So there are things that are similar to other dispensations, but they're going to be different. For example, the the Levitical sacrifice, I mean, not the Levitical sacrifice, the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices that are in the Millennial Kingdom are not the same as the Levitical sacrifices. The priesthood is not the same. It's it's uh, going to be different. Uh, in fact, there, there, there are a lot of people who think that this is some kind of analogy or allegory in using uh, the Levitical sacrifices, but any detailed study of Ezekiel 40 to 48 reveals that the sacrificial system there is radically different from the, all of the uh, many, many sacrifices that are outlined in uh, Exodus and in Leviticus. In fact, it was one of the things that caused the Jews much trouble, and there was some debate, no little debate, over whether or not Ezekiel ought to even be included in the canon because they thought that that somehow the the temple, the sacrifices in Ezekiel were referencing the Mosaic temple. So they, one of the famous rabbis uh, about the time of Christ, or a little before Christ, uh, locked himself away in a room for 40 days and 40 nights, as the legend goes, until he finally figured out a way through some sort of mystical numerology to make all of the... Uh, sacrifices and all of the descriptions of the Millennial Temple uh, fit uh, with the descriptions of the Levitical tabernacle and the Levitical offerings. So that just gets into all of the Kabbalistic, mystical type of interpretations that the rabbis would use. But it is important to understand that that it is really different, and we will see how it differs. Just by way of review, last time we saw that Jesus Christ will be on the earth as the, and the physical center of worship in the Millennial Kingdom. He will be physically present and people will go to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount, to worship Jesus Christ in person. There will not be a cloud of, uh, fire, a cloud of fire, a pillar of fire, or a cloud during the day. As in the Old Testament, there will be the literal presence of Jesus Christ as the focal point of worship. Second, we saw that it will be a time of unprecedented positive volition. The earth, Isaiah 11:9 says, will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as far as the, as the waters cover the sea. So there, there will be a time of unprecedented, po- unprecedented positive volition even among the Gentiles. All Israel, uh, we, as we have seen, all the Jews born during the Millennial Kingdom will be positive and will trust Christ as their Savior. There will be no Jews who reject the Messiah during the Millennial Kingdom. This doesn't mean that God forces them that way, but God in His foreknowledge knows that every Jew in the Millennial Kingdom will trust Him as Savior. Third thing we saw, that Israel will be the priest nation for all the nations. This fulfills Exodus 19.6, where God told Moses, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, that is, a nation set apart. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Israel was called out initially to be a kingdom of priests, and they finally bring that to fulfillment during the millennial kingdom. The fourth thing that we said about the spiritual life of the millennium is that there will be miraculous demonstrations of the Holy Spirit, and these will be commonplace. Passages like Isaiah 32, 15... Isaiah 44.3, Ezekiel 39.29, and Joel 2.28 and 29 emphasize this. Joel is the most clear, which states, It will come about after this, that is, after the uh, judgments of the tribulation period, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The fifth thing we saw is that there will be a new temple, a millennial temple, which is the fourth temple in human history that will be constructed on Mount Zion. Now, this is not the traditional Mount Zion, but there is going to be an eruption of of a... There will be this catastrophic earthquake at the time of the second coming. And as a result of that, there is going to be a plateau raised up in the middle of Israel that will be the highest mountain on the earth. So that we, one thing we learn about the millennial kingdom is that the topography is going to be different. Now, I want to remind you of something I said 
back at the beginning. Tonight I want to try to tie some things together. Back at the beginning, I said that there's a period of time, there's, in Genesis 1-1, there is the creation of the heavens and the earth. Then there is a lapse of time during which Satan falls. So you have the fall of Satan here. Then you have the restoration of the earth in six days, and you have a period of perfect environment on the earth. Then man sins, and there is the curse of Adam in Genesis chapter 3, and you go from perfect environment to perfect environment minus one. One stage removed from perfect environment, and that lasts to the flood. And then from the flood on, we are in perfect environment minus two. Two steps down from perfect environment. This lasts until the second coming at which time there is a reversal. There starts to become a reversal of the curse on nature. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The child will be able to put his hand into the adder's uh, den. There will, be a, um, uh, there will not be the storms, the meteorological catastrophes that we've had today, uh, that are commonplace today. So this will all change. So during the millennium, you go back one step. Perfect environment minus one. And then at the end of the millennium, new heavens and new earth, perfect environment is restored. Notice how the cross is the centerpiece of history and the end mirrors the beginning. The end will mirror the beginning. And just as there were features before the flood, there were many topographical Changes at the flood, there are going to be, once again, topographical as well as biological changes that take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And one of these topographical changes is going to be the uh, raising of Mount Zion and the new temple mount for the millennial kingdom. We're told in Isaiah... 56.7, that this is going to be the central place of worship for the entire world. God speaking there says, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain, referring to Gentiles, and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the people. So there is simp- certainly going to be something different about the Worship in the Millennial Temple is that is for all the peoples, Jew and Gentile, whereas in the Old Testament dispensation of Israel under the Mosaic Law, it was just for Jews. Other passages we saw that emphasized the distinctiveness of the uh, Millennial Temple were in Isaiah 2, 2 through uh, 2 and 3, and Ezekiel 37, 26 through 28. And Ezekiel 37:28 states, And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. That is, from the uh, uh, participle, kadash, meaning to set apart. Israel is set apart when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So this indicates the unique position of, of Israel as the center point of worship and the highest of all the nations during the millennium. We looked at these maps last time that Israel will have all of the promised land that extends all the way from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, from the river Egypt to the Euphrates, covering areas of Iraq and uh, Saudi and Syria and Lebanon that, um, that are controlled by those Arab nations today. And yet during that time, they will be controlled by Israel. The tribe, tribal arrangements are parallel tracts of land going from north to south. And then there's this one central area called the uh, Holy Oblation, the sanctified part, has three divisions. The upper portion is for the Levites. The middle portion is for the priests, the Zadok priests, who actually serve in the temple. The temple itself is in the the center of this area. And then the south you have the the, uh, city of Jerusalem in the central part. So that's what the land will look like in the Millennial Kingdom. The, this is another map showing basically the same thing, another chart showing the position of the 
priest portion here, this portion to the left and right of the central portion belongs to the prince. And then this is the center point that's about eight miles square that is going to be the the set-apart area, the holy area, and the center part of which is the temple, which will be about a mile square. It's going to be just a fantastic place to um, to visit. So there's a an enlarged version of what this is going to going to look like. This is a chart or diagram schematic of the overall layout of the of the temple, and all of these little cubicles along here, where the priests who are serving in the temple will stay and live, and the guardhouse. You have two gates. One gate here and one gate here. All of this is going to be quite formal, and everyone will have specific jobs. This is just a sign of the, the uh, layout of the gate to the temple itself. And there are these alcoves, and people will be stationed in these alcoves, and there's going to be a rigorous protocol to worship in the Millennial Temple. You know, somehow people get the idea that, that if you're Christians, everything's just going to be relaxed, and everybody just sort of does whatever they want to do. And yet, if you read the scriptures, there are, in every dispensation, God has strict protocols. And following the protocol is not legalism. That's one mistake people slip into. Following the Mosaic Law was never legalism. Legalism was thinking that following the Mosaic Law gained you approbation with God. That's what legalism is. Moses wasn't promoting legalism when he said everybody needs to memorize the law and follow it consistently. That's not legalism. Legalism was when the Pharisees came along and and expanded that into a more detailed system and said that by following this, we gain approbation with God, and that's how we gain our righteousness. That's what makes it legalism, the establishment of of a code of conduct and of a rigorous protocol has nothing to do with legalism. Some people get that idea, so I thought I'd better throw that in. Here's a... Another chart of the brazen altar. There will be a huge altar, and the altar is going to be uh, some 32 feet square. And this is where the priest, once a year, will offer a sacrifice, a burnt offering, a sin offering, uh, at the first day of every year, and we'll get into that in just a minute. So Jesus Christ will be the originator. The, The sixth point we saw is that Jesus Christ is going to be the originator of the fourth temple, according to Zechariah 6. 11 to 13. Jesus Christ will be the originator and builder of the fourth temple. Zechariah 6, 11 through 13. The Messiah will build it. And then 7. This is about where we stopped last time. There will be a return to sacrifices in the millennial temple. There will be a return to literal sacrifices in the millennium. Now, this is something that causes a lot of confusion for people. And I even know of one conservative radio announcer uh, in Southern California has a nationally syndicated uh, radio program. He's fairly conservative for the most part. Many times this guy tends to be on the uh, biblically accurate. But he accused my good friend Tommy Ice of being a heretic because he believed in a literal sacrifices in the millennium. And so this is a point of debate for some people, but most dispensationalists believe that there will be a return to literal sacrifices in the millennium. If you're going to interpret the passages of the Scripture in any consistent manner, then you must understand this. But they are not sacrifices related to atonement. There are radical differences in the sacrifices outlined in Ezekiel and those of the Mosaic Law. So let's go over some of these principles. First of all, the purpose of a temple is to establish a set-apart or sanctified location on the sin-cursed earth for the presence of God to dwell. Now, while you're writing that down, I'm going to look up a passage that just sort of struck me this afternoon. When you get to the end of Revelation and get into Revelation chapter 21, where we're in the new heavens and the new earth, we are told in Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in it. This is in the New Jerusalem. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. See, it's no longer a sin-cursed earth in the new heavens and new earth. 
So the purpose of a temple is to establish a set-apart or sanctified location on the sin-cursed earth for the presence of God to dwell. We saw a place where God dwelt on the earth in Eden. Remember, if you carefully look at Genesis 2, God, create, God created a garden east in Eden. Eden is where God's abode was on the earth. East of Eden is where he planted the garden where he put Adam and his wife, Isha, later known as Eve. Later, he, had, he removed his presence at the time of the flood. King James translates the Hebrew word there. It's a hapax legomenon, and the, the old King James translated it, where God said, my spirit will not strive with man anymore. And yet the, all the cognate languages, such as Akkadian, Ugaritic, and Arabic, have, the, have uh, that same word in those languages. And in those languages, that cognate word has the idea of abide. So that's a totally different concept. God is saying that my spirit will not abide with man any longer, that God's presence was still on the earth through that antediluvian period up until the flood when he removed his presence from the earth. One example of his presence on the earth was that he walked with Enoch. That's just one, one example. So God was present on the earth. He, he takes his presence from the earth. It returns in the temple that the, or in the tabernacle the Jews construct at the base of Mount Sinai at the end of Exodus. And then he leaves before the Babylonians come in 586 B.C. He leaves the temple, and Ezekiel saw a vision, the Shekinah glory leaving. And then the next example of the presence of God on earth is the incarnation. And when the presence of the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ, left in the ascension, it returned ten days later when the Holy Spirit descended and made every believer a priest unto God. And this is point two, that currently the church is the temple of God made with living stones. 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 states, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. We are set apart in God's service, positionally. That has to do with our position in Christ, that every one of us physically is, is designated a temple. And that is why we function, the function of a priest is in relationship to a temple. And that is why, and part of our priesthood, is that we have to confess our sins to gain cleansing, because every time a priest went, functioned in the temple, or in relationship to a temple ministry, there had to be cleansing. And that pattern goes through not only throughout the Old Testament, but also the New Testament and on into the Millennial Kingdom. Another passage is 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. Coming to him as a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That outlines the function of our priesthood ministry. So currently, the church is the temple of God made with living stones. Third, crucial point, the intricate details revealed in Ezekiel, the intricate details are similar to the specific details, are similar to the specific details provided in Exodus 25 to 40 for the tabernacle. The point that I'm making here is that just as in Exodus, God gave specific, detailed instructions on how to build a tabernacle. God gives specific, detailed instructions on how to build the Millennial Temple. If you are going to interpret the detailed instructions of Exodus 20 through 40 in such a way that you would go out and, and use that to, to construct a blueprint for the tabernacle because you're literally interpreting those details, you must be consistent and liter also literally interpret the details of Exodus 40 through 48 to be consistent. So it must be understood in the same way. The specificity of the details indicates that this is not some allegory. This is not uh, representational. It's not some spiritual metaphor, but it is designed to be a specific blueprint of how to build the Millennial Temple. Fourth point, 
The purpose, all of this is under the uh, seventh broad point, that there will be a return to literal sacrifices in the millennium. We're expanding the concept. Fourth sub-point. The purpose of Levitical sacrifices was never to accomplish atonement, though they were said to make atonement. They were said to make atonement. Notice the terminology. Leviticus 4.20, He shall also do with the bull, just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Another passage, verse 26 of Leviticus 4. And all its fat he shall offer up in smoke on the altar, as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Leviticus 4.31, Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. Leviticus 4.35, Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offerings, and the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar, on the offerings by fire to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. The point that I'm making is the Old Testament kept articulating the efficacy of the sacrifices in the terminology they would make atonement. Now, the question then is, did these, those sacrifices in the Old Testament actually accomplish atonement? Of course they didn't. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sin. They made atonement ceremonially. That, and the reason I'm making this, po- this point is that if you go into Ezekiel 40-48 through 48 and read about the sacrifices, it says that are, the sacrifices make atonement. But they don't actually make atonement any more than the Old Testament sacrifices make atonement. This is typical ceremonial terminology. Hebrews 10 clarifies that they don't actually make atonement. It's only Christ on the cross that performed the work of atonement, that paid the penalty for sins. These other sacrifices are just pictures. But the standard terminology is to use that phrase, make atonement. If any of these animal sacrifices had any efficacy, there would have been no necessity at all for Christ's death. Okay, the fifth sub-point. Fifth sub-point. The sacrifices of the Millennial Temple are not the same as the Mosaic or Levitical offerings. First, that law, the Mosaic law, has been fulfilled and abrogated by Christ. We know that from passages such as... uh, Romans 6, 14 and 15, Galatians 4, 1 through 7, and Galatians 5, 18, Ephesians 2 and 3. The law has been forever fulfilled. It is abrogated now. It is no longer in effect. It's called the Old Covenant, but the millennium is the instantiation of the New Covenant. That's the whole point in Hebrews chapter 8, is that the Old Covenant was temporary and was intended to be replaced by the new covenant. So it never had any... um, those, Those Levitical sacrifices ended with the cross. Instead, Christ inaugurates a new covenant, and that new covenant has new rituals. It's a new dispensation, it's a new covenant, and it has new rituals. Jesus the Messiah will be physically present during that dispensation. That's unique, never before in human history. And it's not just the Shekinah glory. There will be a new priestly order from the sons of Zadok. Zadok was a descent, is in the tribe of Levi, but the Levites were, are, were disobedient to God, and because of their apostasy in the Old Testament, the Levites as a whole are forbidden to function inside the millennial temple. Only one family of Levitical priests was faithful to the Lord in the Old Testament, And those were the descendants of Zadok, so they have a place and a role in the millennial worship. Ezekiel 40, verse 46 states, But the chamber which faces toward the north is for the priests who keep charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who from the sons of Levi come near to the Lord to minister to him. I want you to turn in your Bibles 
to Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 9. Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 9. This is a fascinating parallel with what takes place with believers at the judgment seat of Christ. We had studied the principle that the judgment seat of Christ, there are those who are, have been successful in the spiritual life of the church age and they receive rewards. And there are those who are failures in the spiritual life in the church age and they lose rewards, yet they enter heaven, yet it's through fire. First John chapter 2 says they experience shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, that not only applies to church age believers, it also applies to uh, Old Testament saints and it applies corporately to the Levites. If you look at Isaiah uh, 44, 9 through 15, we see, see this develop. Verse 9, Thus says the Lord God, Enough, you princes of Israel, put away violence and destruction. Instead, practice judgment, justice, and righteousness. Stop your expropriations from my people, declares the Lord. You shall have just balances, a just ephah, and a just bath. So there will be a judicial government in the millennial kingdom. And then he goes on. Let me see. I might have. I'm in forty. I'm reading the wrong chapter. I'm in verse chapter forty-five. I can't read numbers today. Ezekiel forty-four. Let me start over. Verse nine. Thus says the Lord God: No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel, shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me, their apostasy in the Old Testament who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. So in the millennial kingdom, uh, Levites are going to suffer consequences for their apostasy in the Old Testament. The Levites who are born in the millennial kingdom. This is not talking about Old Testament Levites who are resurrected. They were unbelievers. But this is the impact because Levites were disobedient the, the regenerate Levites in the Millennial Kingdom are not going to be allowed certain privileges in the temple because of what their forebears, because of the disobedience of their ancestors. Verse 11, Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and sacrifice for the people. They shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before the idol, their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord God, that they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. And they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. That's verse 13. So there will be shame for the Levites to a certain degree even in the millennial kingdom because their ancestors led the nation into idolatry and because their ancestors were no longer faithful. Yet they will nevertheless still have a certain role and a certain responsibility and that's outlined in verse 14. And then 15 tells us that it is the sons of Zadok who are the ones who will keep the sanctuary and who will have the position of coming near to God. So the principle is the shame and limitation and in the kingdom is not something simply limited to church age believers, but there's also going to be shame and limitation of inheritance rights applied to uh, Jews whose ancestors were disobedient to the Lord. The sixth point concerning the millennial sacrifices millennial sacrifices are also mentioned by other major prophets. They're also, it's not limited to Ezekiel. They are also listed in various other Old Testament passages. For example, Isaiah 56, 7, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the people. So Gentiles will be bringing sacrifices to the millennial temple. Isaiah 66, 20, Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. So there will be grain offering in the Old Testament. Going on to verse Isaiah 66, 22. 
For just as the new heavens and new earth, which I make, will endure before me, so your offspring, your name will endure, and it shall be come from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. See, there are going to be new moon rituals and Sabbath rituals. All mankind will come down before me. In fact, those new moon and Sabbath rituals are outlined in Ezekiel chapter 46. And then in Jeremiah 33:18, And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. Burnt offerings and grain offerings were two of the three offerings in the Millennial Kingdom. Zechariah 14, 16 through 21 restates the same thing. It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This is in the Millennial Kingdom. And it will be that whichever the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of armies, there will be no rain on them. Zechariah 14:18. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, this is hypothetical because most of them will in the Millennial Kingdom. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Zechariah 14.20 In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. That is, they'll have the same inscription. They'll be sanctified. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of armies, and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of armies in that day. And then Malachi 3, 3 and 4, And he will sit as smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Why would these five prophets mention sacrifices and offerings connected with the restoration of Israel if these were not to be taken literally? And that's the point, is there will be a unique ritual uh, service in the Millennial Temple, and there will be a distinct spiritual life, and there will be certain distinctives to the spiritual life in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, sub-point seven is that these, the purpose of these sacrifices is twofold. First, they are a memorial sacrifice. They are a memorial sacrifice, which is common among Levitical sacrifices, Leviticus 2.2, uh, uses this same phrase that uh, it's a mem- down here. It's a memorial portion on the altar. So even Old Testament sacrifices had a memorial feature to them. Leviticus two nine, the priest then shall take up from the grain offering its memorial portion. Leviticus five twelve, and he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as its memorial portion. Leviticus 6.15, And one of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the incense that is on the grain offering, and he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma as its memorial offering to the Lord. The purpose for a memorial offering is to remember the grace of God in our lives. So over and over again, these passages emphasize that even in the Old Testament, sacrifices had a memorial uh, feature to them. The second facet is point eight, and that is that they don't depict the atoning work of Christ finished once for all sacrifice on the cross, but they are designed for the cleansing, the ceremonial cleansing for the function of priests with a sin nature in the sacred temple, in the millennial temple. Those priests have a sin nature, and they need to go through ceremonial cleansing. And because sinners go into the temple, there needs to be this ritual purification of the temple in the millennial kingdom. And that's the thrust of those sacrifices. You should still be in Ezekiel, so turn back a page or two to Ezekiel 43:18 to 27. Ezekiel 43:18 to 27. God is instructing Ezekiel here, and he says, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on the day it is built to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. That is the building of the uh, altar for the Millennial Temple. They are to have a sacrifice and it is to be uh, sanctified by sprinkling blood on it. 
Verse 19, And you shall give to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a young bull for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns and on the four corners of the ledge and on the border round about. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. See that make atonement terminology again? That doesn't mean that this is an atonement sacrifice. Okay, but it is a, it is a memorial. So it looks back, but it is remembering the grace of God and signifying the importance of death and the penalty of, of, uh, of and death as a penalty for sin and the necessity for cleansing. These are not atoning sacrifices, but they are burnt offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. So this describes the three, excuse me, the three types of sacrifices, three types of offerings. This is point nine. There are three types of offerings. There's a sin offering, there are grain offerings, and there are guilt offerings. Ezekiel 43, 18-27, Ezekiel 44, 29, and Ezekiel 46, 1-15. One more time. Three types of offerings, sin offering, grain offerings, and guilt offerings. The reason is that the priests, believers in the, in the, in the uh, millennial dispensation, still sin, and there needs to be ceremonial or ritual cleansing.
This subheading related to the millennial sacrifices, point 10, sub-point 10, three feasts are observed. Passover in Ezekiel 45.21, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a seven-day feast, each day an un, a bull and a ram without blemish are sacrificed. And, on, and then the third feast is on the seventh month, the fifth day of the month, where again, seven days are set, set aside for sin offerings, grain, and oil offerings. So three feasts are observed in the, in the millennium. Two in the spring, one in the fall. The two in the spring, the first day, uh, the, I mean, the, there's Passover, there's a feast of unleavened bread, and then in uh, the fall, on the seventh month, the fifth day of the month, there are, there's another seven-day or one-week period set aside for sin offerings, grain offerings, and oil offerings. Furthermore, there are also Sabbath rituals and new moon rituals. All of this is related to the worship in the millennial kingdom. Now, there's some other interesting facets about the spiritual life of the millennial kingdom, and one of these is given in Ezekiel chapter 47. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the house. The me is Ezekiel, he is God. Brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. Or the he, excuse me, the he here is not the Lord, it is the messenger from the Lord who is taking Ezekiel around, giving him a millennial tour. 47.1, Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house. The house here is the millennial temple. Water was flowing from under the threshold of the house towards the east, for the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. So in the center part of the temple, the altar, water will flow out of that, and then it splits. And part of it heads to the east, and part heads to the west, to the Mediterranean. The part that heads to the east goes down into the Dead Sea and rejuvenates the waters in the Dead Sea, and that is a sign of regeneration. This is, a, is, this is an interesting pattern or motif or theme throughout the Old Testament. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates Eden, out of Eden, out of the center of Eden, flows a river, and it divided and it, it diverged. No river on earth diverges today. Not one. See, that shows that the topography and the physics of the a perfect environment before the flood was radically different from today. You had a river that flowed from the center of Eden where the presence of God was, and then it split. You see the same thing here in the Millennial Temple, and we'll see the same thing again in the new heavens and the new earth. And it is a picture of life. It's fresh water, and it is a picture of life in contrast to salt water, which is always, it's literal, but it also pictures death and is part of the judgment of sin. This is one reason why I believe that Satan fell between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 is because starting in 1-2 you have darkness on the face of the deep. The deep is salt water. All through Scripture, salt water indicates is also used as a sign of sin and judgment. So there's a river of life that flows out from the temple, splits east and west. The eastern branch rejuvenates the Dead Sea. And then the next event after the river of, after that is the Gog and Magog revolution at the end of the millennium. This is in Revelation chapter 20. So turn with me to Revelation 20 and we'll look at the end events of the millennial kingdom and then the new heavens and new earth. Right in the small. Now, these are the unbelieving dead. All believers are still alive or they've received the resurrection body. So all the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Notice it says according to their deeds, not according to their sins. Sunday morning we looked at the fact that there's been a lot of debate over church, in church history as to the question of for whom did Christ die. One position is that of the uh, hyper-Calvinist, the five-point Calvinist, called limited atonement. 
limited atonement. And in limited atonement, Christ died only for the elect. That was the position that was set forth at the Senate of Dort in 1618, and it's what is called five-point Calvinism. Now, there, I want to define something for you because there's always somebody who misuses the term. Hyper-Calvinism. What is hyper-Calvinism? Now, some of you don't, will not know what I'm talking about for the next two minutes, so that's okay. There are three views as to, in the decrees of God, the relationship of God's decree that man will fall and the decree of, of God's salvation. How you structure those, whether God's decree to save man is before his decree for them to fall or the other way around, determines whether you are supra-lapsarian, lapse meaning to fall, which means that God decreed that they would, he would save them before he decreed for their fall, or there is also the, the, there's supra-lapsarianism and there is uh, sub-lapsarianism, and there are various other variations of that, but only supra-lapsarianism is the view of hyper-Calvinism. That's the extreme form. Most people run around saying anybody who's a little more deterministic than they are is a hyper-Calvinist. Well, that just shows you don't understand what the term means. And there are a lot of people who throw it around. I've heard people say, even in this congregation, say that if you believe in election, unconditional election, which is part of TULIP, that you're a hyper-Calvinist. Well, that just shows that you don't know anything because Lewis Perry Chafer was a consistent four-point Calvinist and held the limited atonement, as does John Walbert and most of the faculty at Dallas Seminary. I don't agree with that uh, anymore. I think the whole system needs to be revised, but they're not hyper-Calvinists. A hyper-Calvinist is a super-lapsarian five-point Calvinist. And not all five-point Calvinists are super-lapsarian, but I diverge. Limited atonement. The second position was the response of a guy by the name of Moses Amiro. And he had a view that's called um, hypothetical. Very few people use this terminology or even understand it. It's really called hypothetical atonement and what is traditionally referred to as four-point Calvinism. And a four point, traditional four-point Calvinist will define the extent of the atonement with the phrase that it is sufficient for all, but efficient only for the elect. Let me say that again. Sufficient for all, but efficient only for the elect. Now, that sounds good, but it, where is it wrong? It's efficient only for the elect. It's sufficient for all, but that doesn't mean that he actually died for their sins. The problem here is you're left with a hypothetical substitution. Well, what, what kind of substitution is hypothetical? You've got to have a real substitution. And so the third position is that his death is a real substitution and truly pays the penalty for every sinner, believer and unbeliever, so that the penalty is paid for, but that doesn't solve the problem of their lack of life or their lack of righteousness. And it is only at the point of faith alone in Christ alone when they are imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ, and because they possess that, God the Father also imputes to them His very own eternal life. And all of this happens uh, simultaneously. There's a logical relationship, first justification, then uh, rebirth, spiritual life. But this means there's a real substitution in Christ, truly paid the penalty for all, and that is the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And since he paid the penalty for sin and there's no double jeopardy, then the issue at the great white throne judgment is the fact that their, their works aren't good enough to measure up to the perfect righteousness of God, which is what is required. And that is a, a, a position that very few people teach. It's been around for centuries, and it is the only thing that makes sense of all the passages of Scripture. The problem with Calvinism, we started this whole series off talking about dispensations and covenant theology. The problem with Calvinism, as with Lutheranism, and is that after the Reformation, their positions basically calcified, they hardened, they froze in time, and they creedalized them by the end of the 16th century, so that froze them from future development. What happened is there were people who were pushing 
literal interpretation of Scripture more and more, and they recovered premillennialism and then later dispensationalism. In fact, most, if not all, of the early dispensationalists in the 19th century were four- and five-point Calvinist Presbyterians. People like Darby, people like Schofield, people um, like um, Schofield's pastor in St. Louis were all Southern Presbyterians. Lewisbury Chaper was a Southern Presbyterian. To this day, John Walford still baptizes infants. He is a Presbyterian. When I went to Dallas Seminary, I'd say 60% of my, my, my uh, professors in the 70s were still Presbyterians. It came out of that, because, but they refused to accept that calcified uh, covenant theology, Calvinism, that was frozen at the Senate of Dort. Anyway, the Millennial Kingdom ends with the Gog and Magog Revolution, and then there is the Great White Throne Judgment, and then following that, we have the destruction of the present heavens and the earth. This is described in 2 Peter 3, 10-13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away. This is, remember the term day of the Lord refers from everything beginning with the tribulation through the millennial kingdom to the final destruction of the present heavens and the earth. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in a holy conduct and godliness? This is why this is the purpose for eschatology. Notice how Peter makes this shift. He's been talking in chapter three about future things and what's going to happen. Now that we understand the future, what impact is that going to make on how we live today? See, that's the concept we talk about here is the personal sense of eternal destiny. We need to live today in light of the future. Because all of this is temporary. All of this is going to be burned up. The reason it has to be burned up is the present heavens and earth has all been tainted by sin. Because it's been tainted by sin and under the curse of sin, then it has to be destroyed and there will be a new heavens and new earth created that where sin has never existed. That's the difference between Christianity and all other systems of thought. You'll, often you'll run into some unbeliever who challenges you, well, how can a good God let all this suffering go on? And that's so hard for people to answer. Well, after you answer it, you say, I'll answer that question if you will then answer my question when I'm done. You answer the question by saying that according to the Bible, evil and suffering had a beginning. It's controlled by God. Remember the statement by Joseph? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God's even in control of evil. And evil ends at a point in time in the future, and it will be restricted and consigned to eternity in the lake of fire. But every other pagan system, the person that's talking to you and says, well, how can you believe in a God who lets all this happen? He has no basis for even distinguishing good from evil. For him, evil is just as normal and is as eternal as good is. He has no solution to the problem of evil, and he gets on his arrogant high horse and tries to make us look bad. Turn it back on them. Flip the switch on them. They, they don't have a leg to stand on. Peter says, all, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in terms of your spiritual life? Looking for... Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's personal sense of eternal destiny. We are living today in light of eternity. Then God's going to create the new heavens and new earth, and this is described in Revelation chapter 21. Just a couple of things I want to point out here. First of all, there's no more salt sea anymore. That's removed in Revelation 21.1, that Remember, there was a salt sea in Genesis 1-2, but there's no salt sea after the new, in the new heavens and new earth. Secondly, there is fresh water. Verse uh, 6, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life. Notice the metaphor again, this, this image that goes from Genesis 2 all the way to Revelation 21 of this river of life. 
Then another verse to point out is down in verse 23, And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. There's no darkness. Darkness and salt sea are both uh, results of sin and judgment. That's why you have darkness and, sin, and, and salt sea in Genesis 1-2. Something has happened to a perfect creation to cause uh, a judgment on the earth. And that's why Genesis 1-2 indicates that a judgment has occurred between 1-1 and 1-2. And as I said, we see the, the river of life. And this is reemphasized again in chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life. Where did we see the tree of life before? In Genesis chapter 2. See, there is a restoration, a perfect environment with the same sort of topography where a river comes out and diverges and there will be again the presence of the tree of life and there's no more evil. Evil, according to Christianity, is restricted in time. There's a beginning and an end and then it's dealt with. After that, there will be the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then in verse 3, And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So this is the conclusion of our study on God's plan for the ages. And we see that it begins, it has a structure, it has a purpose, and it has a flow. And when it all ends, the saints are in a new heaven and new earth, with responsibilities, there will be a, the New Jerusalem uh, on the earth, which is a cr- tremendous city, which will be a, the abode of the Bride of Christ, which means us, and then we will spend eternity with our Lord, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study your word, to understand the flow of history, and that you are indeed in control and that these events will come to pass as you have decreed them, because so much of what you have uh, prophesied and decreed has already come to pass, literally. Father, we see that there will be an end to suffering, an end to evil, and that you will ultimately bring judgment on all that has rebelled against you, and that you will be glorified among the angels and among man for your grace and your faithfulness and your loving kindness. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by the things we've studied, As the Apostle Peter stated, now that we see these things, what manner of life should we live? How should we pay attention to our spiritual life now that we know the importance of our destiny and what our destiny is? We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.